Okay, y'all. We have a uh, we have a special night tonight that, un- unfortunately, I am not going to be able to attend. But I want to encourage you all to attend. I am, if you can and will tonight, pray. I'm going up to Dallas uh, to meet with some folks that are capable and are very committed to the vision of this church and very committed to seeing the vision go forward. And we're talking about how to uh, see that happen with financial resources. So I'm going to be meeting with these folks. If you would pray for the meeting, pray for the Lord to use that to help us uh, as we continue to go forward and seeing as our vision, that this church by this time next year doubles with people hearing the gospel. That's what we're believing God to do. Uh, So it's an exciting time. There are lots of folks who the Lord seems to be working to believing that to be true and to seeking that to be true, starting with the leadership of this church and starting with those of you that are getting the gospel and learning what does it mean to build your life around the gospel. So that being said, tonight, though, we're going to hear from a trip uh, that went down to the coastline after the hurricane and to see how God is using you uh, indirectly and directly in this church. Uh, just to just to give you a perspective that God is doing more than you know personally. Uh, my brother called me this week and he says, hey, he leaves a message on my cell phone. Hey, I was just at a, uh, a DTS luncheon, a Dallas Theological Seminary luncheon, raising support, they're raising support. So I call him and he says, there's this speaker, he was speaking and he was, he's from the former Soviet Union, and he said that he just got done with seminary, and he said he came to know Christ in 1991. And he goes, ding. And Pete goes up and talks to this guy and says, do you know Jeff Hatton? And he goes, yeah, he's, he's the guy that led me to Christ. I have no clue who this guy is. <laughs> but I do know that I was in... Kazakhstan in 1991, and I do know that we shared the gospel with hundreds, if not thousands, of people that year. And this guy comes to know Christ in a Muslim area, goes to seminary, and his vision is to go and plant a gospel driven church in Kazakhstan. So, brothers and sisters, good night. You know, what's the kingdom of God like? Well, it's like a man who goes out, throws the seed, goes to sleep, and he wakes up and he's like, where did this come from? Oh, I get that now. And we need to get that. And so let's hear a little bit more. But even what we hear tonight is not, it's only the tip of the iceberg. Because God is at work. And sometimes he lets you know about it. Sometimes he doesn't. He has his ways of doing things. So brothers and sisters... Let's get in the game and be a part of what he's doing, okay? Now, as you can tell, just because I'm taking a little break doesn't mean I'm taking a little break. You better be ready for when I get back. That's all I can say. (laughs) All right. What are we doing? Here's what we're doing. How many of you here have never heard of Jean Sebastian Bach? Anyone here not heard of Bach? Okay, good. No one here does not have a life. That's great. Now, Sebastian Bach. We know, many of you know, most people know, he would sign his compositions S-D-G, right? Which stood for, in Latin, soli 
Deo. There we go. And what does that mean? Solely to the glory of God. So he does his work, and consciously in what he does, he's, he's thinking about the glory of God. He's doing things to the glory of God. Great stuff. What a great way to live. What, what would it be like if we get that, if you get that as a mother? If you get that as a 14-year-old playing football? What would it be like to really get that in your fiber? All right. Well, well, most people, too, know about that, but very few know that he used to slip into his compositions J.J. as well. Now, I didn't get a chance to grab um, a Latin person, so if I butcher this, it has no reflection on my kids who are studying Latin or their mother. <laughs> Only on me. I want to say Yesu. Is that correct for the J? Fantastic. Then I'll get the next one right. J.J., which stood for Yesu Yuban. You know what that means? Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. He just inserted it in the middle of his composition. So here's a man that, that's doing things consciously for the glory of God, and yet where is God most glorified? In prayers like that. Help me, Jesus. All right, this morning in our dry, dusty, dead doctrine series, we're looking at faith. We're looking at one of those Christian words and subjects that everyone gets, right? Who here does not get faith? I mean, everyone gets faith. Faith moves mountains, right? Faith is like, it's likened to this shield that can deflect enemy, dark, ghastly spiritual powers. Deflect it and defend you. It's incredible stuff. Faith protects. It pleases God. Remember the scriptures say, look, if there is no faith, if you do something without faith, it's not pleasing to God. It's actually sin. Faith is the only thing that pleases God, we're told, throughout Hebrews. We're told that that faith justifies. Has this reality in which somehow it plays a part in divine acceptance and divine favor. That's incredible. Also, faith has this this sense of producing or creating godliness and spiritual guts in you. Faith has this way of satisfying, bringing in satisfaction and a major shaping influence in your soul that sends the human soul out to others. Unbelievable stuff. In many ways, faith is the one word that summarizes the Christian life from beginning to end, right? Right? From faith, from first to last, as Paul says in Romans. We live by faith, as Paul says. The life I live in the body, I live by faith, he says. You want to know, well, how do you live the Christian life? By faith. Well, how do you get into the Christian life? By faith. Well, how do you continue in difficulties in the Christian life? By faith. Well, how do you, how do you finish strong or crawling, but you finish? By faith. Doesn't this excite you? We're going to look at faith. I mean, faith, faith is, I mean, for some of you, you've been longing for me to say this. Faith is something we do. I mean, no one believes for you. God doesn't have faith for you. You believe. You trust God. I mean, faith is something you do. Doesn't this excite you? Well, being a church and being in the church 
occupation or calling, we get lots of um, interesting church stuff that comes in the mail. And it's stuff that reminds me why I'm a Christian. It reminds me that I'm a Christian because of a miracle. It reminds me that I'm a Christian because of a gracious work of God through someone outside of me and a gracious work of God in my heart. Because if it wasn't a miracle, if it wasn't a good work of God that He does, when I get this stuff, it would drive me away from Christianity. Stuff drives me nuts. I've got to be honest with you. So I'm reading this stuff about a national conference on worship, right? Specifically, I'm being a worship leader. Big names, big churches, big music, big productions. Big stuff. Now, I'm not against big. Right? There's nothing inherently godly about smallness. Right? Nothing. I mean, some folks think that, you know, good night. The smaller we are, the more faithful we are. And possibly the more weird you are as well. (laughs) Well, I read that one of the main speakers for the conference was speaking on heroes of faith. And here's a byline of the description. You ready? Abraham was faithful to the call of the Lord. And it was credited to him as righteousness. What does it take for a modern-day heroes of faith to continue despite all obstacles that seem to stand in their way? You know, it is coming here, you know, kind of thing. So according to this big-name speaker, Abraham's faithfulness to the call of God, you know what that means? His ongoing, tireless, fatigueless, faithful obedience to the call of God on his life despite all obstacles that were in their way. His ongoing, faithful, tireless obedience was credited to him as righteousness. And I found, my say, I found myself saying, oh, that's it? Oh, that's it? I mean, I mean, all he did was tirelessly obey God for his whole life despite all obstacles, perfectly, completely. And then when he gets to the end of it, God says, now I give you righteousness. And I said, oh man, what a piece of cake. I hope I can do that. So please hear me. At the beginning of we talk about faith, here's what I want to say first of all. Faith in your faith, which is what this man was saying, is not a credited righteousness in your account because of someone else. And because of accredited righteousness, because of someone else in your account, God looks at you and he does personally embrace you and welcome you home and accept you in his sight as righteousness because of the credited righteousness of another. No, faith in faith is self-righteousness. Faith in faith is a substitute savior. Faith in faith is trusting in your spiritual performance or your spiritual faithfulness to get God to love you and accept you and take you in. And it will never save you. And if you're a Christian and you know you got in by the credit of the righteousness of another, but now you live the Christian life like it does depend on your faithfulness, it's taking your soul and running it to the ground. And if you're a parent, you're killing your kids. If you're a Sunday school teacher, 
you're ruining those kids. Okay? So, faith, biblical faith, real Christian faith, is always, help me, Jesus. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. All right, let's look at Luke 23, 39 through 43. We're picking it up in the middle of the, the passion story. So we're, we're zooming in on one scene. This is a long set of scenes at the cross. We're going to one, and we're going to spend most of our time here. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. This is the sixth confession from the third different person of Jesus' innocence. So one theme that runs through, and I'm not spending any time on it, but one theme is he's a righteous man. He's a righteous man. He's a righteous man. And three different witnesses bear witness that he's an innocent man, including a non-innocent man, a criminal. Okay, 42, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh God, we thank you that you give abundant grace beyond we can imagine and beyond what we ask. So even our feeble asking now, asking you for manna from heaven, asking you to feed us spiritual food, that you promise to give us daily and you promise will be there for us tomorrow. So, oh Lord, would you give us now, would you feed us now, would you feed us the sustenance the satisfaction and the salvation and the sweetness of your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name, and we ask this for the sake of our own good. Amen. All right, first, we are in a series, dry, dusty, dead doctrine series, right? We're in a series. What do we do first? Well, first we looked at the need of justification. We saw that justification is... It is a deep, personal word that speaks to the deepest driving longing of the human soul. The deepest driving longing of your soul is to be accepted. It's to be lovingly welcomed home. It's to be taken in. It's to have God's approving eye on you. And we saw that C.S. Lewis taught us that. He said, look, I, I realized when I looked at a child, I realized it was so simple to see that the echo in the children is an echo of how God's designed us. In other words, when you look at children, what do they want? They want to be praised by their parents more than anything. And then like a flash of light, he realized, good night, that's how we're wired, and it's an echo of justification. So you and I deeply long for God to accept us. And if we're not sensing, 
not just objectively, but experientially leaning into it and tasting it and, and rolling around in it in the midst of seeing your sin and in the midst of difficulties in your life, if we're not doing that, our soul gets hurt. Okay? And then we start trying to stuff this God-shaped hole for God's acceptance for justification with self-justification, self-righteousness, any way to get God to finally accept us and look on us with favor. And then maybe we go to our performance, and then maybe we go to people. There's endless substitutes that we can do, right? This is what we do. That's what we saw the first week. The second week, we saw that God justifies. Who is this God that justifies? And so we, we dared to go where we shouldn't go, but had to go. Remember? We went to Isaiah 6, and we saw that holy, holy, holy God, and we began to say, who is this God that justifies? And we went to the probably the most popular, scariest, holiest passage in all of Scripture, and we were shocked. Because when we got there, Isaiah was brought there not to be judged, but to be justified. In the scariest, holiest place in the Bible, many say. Right? Then we moved on. Third, we turned the camera in on us. So we went to this need for justification, the God who justifies. Then we went to us and we go, well, who are the ones whom God justifies? Who are these people? What are they like? What are we like? And we saw, we went to a story that Jesus told about two people who went to church. Remember? Or went to temple. And this is where I ruined your self-image. The scriptures completely destroyed your self-image. So if you're going into counseling in the future, you can build a church. They'll take care of it. Because here where we saw that, that God justifies not the righteous, but the unrighteous. The ungodly. He doesn't justify religious people who perform really well, but have no need for a Savior. They're not justified. And that just, that just that blows our categories of who the church is full of, right? In other words, Jesus goes after bad people, not good ones. Okay. On Easter Sunday, we looked at the grounds or the basis of justification. And this is kind of what kind of blows our minds. We're looking at how in the world can a holy God justify an unholy person? So how can a holy God accept and bring in and declare to be righteous that which is not righteous? How can he do that? And we saw that he did it through the resurrection and exaltation of his son. God justifies Jesus. What? Yeah. God justifies Jesus because Jesus perfectly obeyed his Father even to death on the cross. Therefore, his Father declares him to be righteous. His Father declares him to be the true King. His Father says, take your rightful place at the right hand of the throne of God. And that righteousness of Jesus is the grounds or the basis of what gets credited to you when you trust him as your righteousness. And based on that, God 
accepts you. Now, do you see how deep this is? And next week we're going to get into the real deep implications of this, but do you see how deep this is? If, if what your soul deeply longs for is found in the righteousness of another, not in you and in your performance and in your righteousness, if you really get that, you know what happens to you? You're the most courageous, the most content, the most happy. You are the strongest. You run the farthest. When all hell breaks loose, you smile and hurt at the same time. I don't know about you, but I want to be one of those people. By the grace of God, I want to be one of those people. This is incredible stuff. Today, though, what we're going to look at is the instrument by which God justifies you or the instrument by which you live the Christian life, and that's faith. So when you think of faith, what you've got to do is not do what that big-name speaker did, which is take, make faith the grounds or the substance of your justification. But faith is the instrument, the channel, by which God gives you your justification or the righteousness of another. Do you see the difference? And also, when you go through life, the Christian life, it is trusting that same, whatever faith is, it's that same vehicle by which God feeds you and nourishes you and takes you on your way in the Christian life. It's that channel, that instrument that ends up producing all kinds of holiness and guts. Okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to make some general comments about faith from this passage. In other words, laying around on the surface of this passage is many things that can be picked up. Many pieces about faith that just lie on the surface. We'll look at them, and they're helpful. They're extremely helpful, but they're not the powerful point in the passage. To get to the point, we're going to have to dig just a tad. And as we dig just a tad, we're going to pull out the point in the passage about faith. And that will surprise you. Okay, are you with me? Can you bear with me? Hang in there with me. About 20 minutes. We're on our way. Yep, 15. Let's start with picking up some of the pieces. You ready? Here's the first piece you can see. It's just lying on the surface of the text. It's easy to see. Faith is what people do. Do you see it? Look at this passage. Faith is what people do. If we were to stretch the scene a little bit, let's go up to scene 32. We see many other characters in this passage. We've got all kinds of characters in this passage. If we go up to 32, we've got the two criminals. We've got uh, the people, the spiritual gawkers standing around the cross. We've got the rulers. We've got the soldiers. And what all of these people are doing, they're all exercising faith. Do you see that? All the characters in this story are exercising faith. At a bare minimum, at a bare minimum, they're exercising faith that Jesus is not the Christ. Do you see that? I mean, look at the scene. It's an incredible scene. All except for one criminal, and possibly we're not given any judgment about the spiritual gawkers, so we don't know what they're doing. But the others we are, powerful people, big people, religious leaders, soldiers. Listen to what they say. He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. That's what the religious leaders say in verse 35. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. I mean, can you imagine? You've got Rome's best, these soldiers standing around, standing around and taunting, railing at. It literally means to make small, making Jesus small. Soldiers, when one word in this divine warrior could snatch the breath right from their lungs. 
In fact, the real man of war in that story, not the pretenders like these soldiers, the real man, the centurion, he got it. He watched a divine warrior die, and he got it. You've got then this criminal. He says, are you not the Christ? The Greek's great because I'm a Greek nerd. I love Greek. It says, uki, not me. You know what that means? It means that the speaker believes that it's not true. In other words, it's a rhetorical question. He says, are you not the Christ? And the Greek says, of course, I don't believe you are. If it used may, it could, if it used a different word for not, it would be like, well, there's a possibility or yes, of course you are. But this, this criminal is saying, are you not the Christ? Heck no, you're not. But just in case, he says, save yourself and us. <laughs> just in case, I'm going to cover all my bat bases, right? Save yourself and me if it's, that's the case. Now, I want you to listen to their faith. Listen to everyone's faith in these statements. Listen to how much they know. They know that Jesus cannot save himself. They know that Jesus is not the Christ of God. They know that Jesus is not the chosen one. They know that Jesus is not the king of Jews. They know that Jesus cannot save them. Look at how much they know. Look how much faith they have. It's phenomenal. And so here's the first piece I want you to see. It's very, very helpful. It's lying right there for us. Unbelief is still faith. Do you see that? So when we do not believe Jesus, when we do not trust God, it's not that we don't have faith, it's we have an alternate faith. Do you see that? So unbelief is still faith. Every human being exercises faith. Every single one. Every single person in here. We all do. We're all trusting something. Okay? Now, for example, if you reject Christianity because of its followers, let's say you're someone who's checking Christianity out. You're, you're here, as David mentioned, ultimately because of a personal God, even though that you don't believe that. But you, the biggest barrier for you is Christians to Christianity. In other words, to you, you just can't be a Christian because Christians are mean, because Christians are condescending, because Christians are hypocritical, because Christians think they're better than everybody else. And my first thing I want to say to you is, you're right. Christians are mean, are hypocritical, are condescending, do think they're better than everybody else. Now, I want you to see your alternate belief, though, your alternate faith. You don't think that you are mean. You don't think that you're condescending. You don't think that you're better than anybody else. And that's maybe where we differ. Okay? Because Christianity, real Christianity, says we're all messed up. Every single person is messed up. That's why Jesus came. And that's why there's something called justification based on the righteousness of another perfect human Savior who's God himself. Okay? And so what we have is, is, again, I want you to see that even doubts, when you doubt and reject Christianity, you still have to face what your alternative belief might be, your alternative faith might be. Now, it's those who 
who begin to see that they are messed up that have the greatest potential to change, though. So I want you to see the incredible, what one of the greatest hopes in the Christian faith is that there is great potential to change morally and to be cleaned up. Tremendous potential. But it starts by knowing you're messed up. When you're messed up, there's tremendous hope in turning to a Savior who cleans you up. Okay? So what I want to say, too, is in this life, though, we're told that Christians are being morally cleaned cleaned up in an imperfect and ongoing process way. So this means... This means that Christians can be cleaned up in some areas and cleaned up, not cleaned up in other areas. And so that means that Christians can be morally inferior to someone who does not believe in God and is not connected to Jesus in some areas of their life. Wow. I didn't expect that one. So we're all messed up. We all need a Savior. But Christianity gives a great hope of morally getting cleaned up by God. But it leaves room for imperfect people who are mean, condescending, prideful hypocrites. Okay? All right. Another helpful piece of faith that we can pick up on the surface of the text. Faith sees a greater kingdom at work beyond the naked eye. Do you see that? I mean, look at in verse 42. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You see that? So the naked eye only sees frets and fears. The naked eye only sees Somali pirates. The naked eye only sees you losing your job. The naked eye only sees economic crisis about ready to crush everybody. Right? The naked eye only sees personal failure, personal rejection, You're lacking of money. You're lacking of friends. You're lacking of someone really loving you. A bad marriage. A wayward child. That's what the naked eye sees. The naked eye sees horrible sins committed against you and loved ones. The naked eye only sees frets and fears. Faith sees a greater kingdom at work beyond the naked eye. Do you see that? So, for instance, the naked eye only sees a criminal hanging on a cross, and justly so. I mean, what a poor wretch. He's probably in his 20s. Maybe he's a teenager. Is he married? We don't know. If he's not, he'll never be married, never have children. But here's some dude, and according to the the text, one part it says robbers, but the word used there talks about Crimes of rape, murder, and thievery. So he could be either of them, one of them, or all three of them. And he's on the cross justly deserving what he deserves. A pitiable creature. Get him what he deserves. No one will remember him, except maybe for some loyal mother that's still around. You've seen it. You've seen when thieves and Serial killers and the mom. The mom. I'm just baffled by moms sometimes. Still saying, my son didn't do it. Right? But faith sees 
not just a criminal hanging on the cross, and justly so, faces a greater kingdom at work beyond the naked eye. Something else is at work there in that guy's life, right? Now, the naked eye only sees a nobody, possibly a decent man, certainly an innocent man, tragically hanging on the cross. You know, just when he was getting to the height of his popularity, people were calling him the Christ, going to be the second king of David. He's at the height of his ministry. And in the dead of the night, whisked away like a criminal, charged like a criminal, hung on the cross like a criminal, being made small by big, powerful people, people like religious leaders, the biggest, most powerful, morally influential people in all of Israel. Then you got Rome, you got Pilate, the leader of the area, you got soldiers, all trying to make him small. Now you've got another criminal on the cross trying to make him small. Taunting him, saying things like, save the world, dude, save the world. Show us your power. Come on. Come on. Rise off that cross. That's what the naked eye sees. You know what faith sees? He is saving the world. He is showing his power. He will rise off that cross. Oh, faith. Faith sees a kingdom way beyond the naked eye. Those are just things you can pick up from the surface of the text, okay? Are you ready for the point? Got to dig just a little deeper. Look at verse 32. Verse 32, it says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. Now, Matthew describes these criminals at this point in the event of the scene of the cross. So this is the very beginning. Here's how Matthew describes it. You ready? And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Did you catch it? Robbers, plural, reviled him. Something happened. Something changed from verse 32 down to verse 40. Something happened where one criminal went from a reviler to a reliar. Something happened where some guy's life did a 180 right there. You've got to ask yourself, how in the world could that happen? How in the world could that happen? It doesn't make any sense. And the answer is, you're right, it doesn't make any sense. Grace never makes sense. Here's the point. You ready? Faith is a personal gift from Jesus himself. Faith is a personal gift from Jesus himself. could say it this way. It is Jesus himself that goes up to you, opens the eye of your faith so that you see him and trust him. Jesus does it. 
That's why it doesn't make sense to us. It's all grace. I want you to see how personally it is, though. This is the first time when the criminal speaks, verse 42, the first time he speaks to Jesus, notice what he does. He is the only one in the book of Luke to address the Christ this way. Jesus, remember me. He is the only one that simply uses Jesus' name that Gabriel the angel told Mary and Joseph to name this Savior. Jesus, which means Savior. Do you see how personal that is? Jesus, remember me, help me, right? Now, there's a real barrier to all of us right now, to this point. We don't get this point, because I know when you, when you, you know, you were shocked when you heard it, you're just like, whoo! That's the most incredible thing I've heard all day. And you know why you don't get it? You know why I don't get it? There's a barrier to us getting it. You know what the barrier is? Here's the barrier. We think God is slow and we think he's stingy in giving us grace and help in our most needful time. And so it gets in the way because in the back of our mind, in our hearts, we're thinking, now God's slow and he's stingy. He's not generous with me. And so when we think, gosh, grace is, or faith is a personal gift from Jesus himself, I'm saying, that's why I don't have a lot of it. Because he's slow to give it. And he holds out on me when I desperately need it. You know, the Jewish understanding of the resurrection, you remember what it was, those of you here last week, you remember what it was? The Jewish understanding of the resurrection was all the righteous at the end of the age, not an individual in the middle of the age. So this resurrection of Jesus is just completely outside their worldview. Their worldview is, yeah, of course, all the righteous, all the righteous at the end of the age will be resurrected. That's a given in their theology. So the criminal is humbly asking to be a part of the righteous entourage at the end of the age. That's what he's asking here. So when Jesus, God's chosen champion, comes at the end of the age, he's saying, Oh, God, just, just let me be at the end of the line, please. Just, just let me be there. The end of the line's fine for me. Because I got nothing in my life that shows that I'm righteous. Put me at the end. And Jesus does infinitely more than this guy asks or even imagines. Do you hear what he says? I mean, listen to it. Truly I say to you, in other words, Jesus always tells the truth. Truly I say to you, today, 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 you'll be with me. Not at the end of the line. You'll be with me. Not in Sheol, waiting for that day, but in paradise. Pleasure ground. When an ancient Near Eastern king was coronated king and of his kingdom, you know what happened to him? He received gifts. He received gifts from all his subjects in his kingdom, the greatest to the smallest. Everyone brought a gift. If you didn't bring a gift, he received gifts from all his allied kings and kingdoms. He received gifts from all the conquered kings and kingdoms. He received gifts upon gifts 
upon gifts. When Jesus ascended into heaven and took his rightful place on the throne, he didn't receive gifts. He gave them. He gave them. And he continues to give them. Because the mark of this king is giving, not receiving. Today, you will be with me in paradise. This is immediate today. And this is unbelievable, generous bounty. So my unbelieving friends, here's how we end. Jesus is the kind of king whose greatness is measured not by receiving gifts, but by giving them. So receive him. Trust him. Ask him for the gift of the forgiveness of sins. Ask him for the gift of a righteousness that's not your own. Ask him, as we see here, ask him for the gift of his personal presence to be with you. Can you imagine having a relationship with a king like this? Ask him for paradise now and later. Paradise today and in the future. And then some of you are thinking, but I don't have any faith. How can I trust him? I don't have any. Oh, and this passage says so. So what? So you don't have any faith. You don't have any faith. The Christian over there didn't have any faith either until I gave it. Ask him for the gift of faith because it's a personal gift that a king gives because he won. Every spiritual blessing is in the heavenlies in him, and that includes your faith to believe him. Okay? My believing friends, most of our frets and fears can be traced to thinking God is slow and stingy to help us and give us grace in our time of need. That's where most of our frets and our fears come from. So Jesus ascended to heaven and took his rightful place on his throne to give you gifts. Immediately and generously. And so right now, cry out to him. Pour out your soul to him. And if you don't have any faith, join the club. It's only by differing degrees and measures that we differ. Ask him for more faith. And what you can do is you can let this passage be your vision. Let, your, let this passage be your vision. I want, I want to believe like this. Make this passage your prayer. Oh God, Jesus, remember me. Help me. And then you can be like Bach. And in the middle of your life, in the middle of an argument, in the middle of conflict, in the middle of feeling wretched and guilty, in the middle of devastating news, in the middle of confusion, in the middle of you don't know which way is up, you can put JJ. Jesus, help me. Amen.